vampires and slayers. This is Mixtress Ray, and you're listening to What's This Bitch Talking About? To which the answer to that question is every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer exactly 20 years after its original air date. For real this time, because I get to actually record on the day. It is still Saturday. (laughs) The last two weeks I've had to, like, last week I recorded a day late, I think, or a day early. I don't, anyway, it was either a day late or a day early the last few weeks since we started this season, but now I get to do it on the day, which feels right. You know, it just does. Okay, so let's talk about the Angel episode first. So the Angel episode that aired 20 years ago today was called Carpe Noctum, and that is... I just closed the episode guide. Let's read the summary from Nikki Stafford on this one. It is... Where are we? An elderly man switches bodies with Angel, who must find a way to contact his friends before before succumbing to the ravages of old age. So, I kind of hated this episode. It was... Ironically, it passed the Bechdel test, the first exchange, pretty much. Um, Fred comes into the room, she sits down next to Cordelia, who's looking at a magazine, and she says... Why do girls want to look like that? I spent years in a cave starving. What's their excuse? And then Cordelia says, fashion. I used to think that was a funny joke, but it just sounds like, you know, something that one of the male writers thought, ooh, who can we blame this episode on? I hardly ever look at, like, the whole, like, who directed, who wrote it, that kind of thing. But let's look. Let's look, shall we? Written by Scott Murphy and directed by James A. Contner. I know James A. Contner directed a lot of episodes of Buffy and Angel, I think, but geez, I kind of hated this episode because it was just, it was just an excuse to make Angel act like a dick and everyone think that he had turned evil and, you know, do some exposition stuff about how he can't, you know have sex or he loses his soul and just get that shit out there just in case, you know, somebody had just started watching Angel or something. Um, That's all this was. They do that at least once a season where they either turn Angel temporarily evil or they make you think that he's turned evil, but it's really some other thing like this. So basically an old man that's like sad that he's, you know, old and dying does a spell to inhabit people's bodies and he just like has some wild nights or something but the spell never lasts and it always kills the guy but then he's returned to his original body somehow so he's like gone through like 10 guys and so then he inhabits angel and, you know, Angel's immortal, so he's finally found a forever home, possibly. And, yeah, that's all. And then Angel's acting like an asshole because it's this Marcus guy in Angel's body. So he's acting like an asshole the whole episode, calling people sweetheart and doll and have I ever told you that you're a very beautiful woman? And it's just sleazy. It's just sleazy. And I'm a little disappointed in Nikki Stafford because in her episode guide, she's talking about how fun it is to see Angel being all sleazy and and the hilarious joke when, when somebody's referring to Fred and 
Marcus in Angel's body thinks that he misinterprets and thinks that that means that Angel's gay because of, you know, Fred. Anyway, whatever, stupid shit. Um, Angel wants to go see like a Charlton Heston double feature at the beginning of like actual Angel at the beginning of the episode. And um, Fred goes, is the only one that wants to go. And she kind of has a crush on Angel and she thinks that it was a date and they have a great time together. And Cordelia is like hounding Angel throughout the episode to talk, go talk to Fred and tell her, you know, nothing's going to happen between us, you know, because I can't, you know, have sex and blah, 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 because of my curse, blah, 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 whatever, whatever. Um, but yeah, so I don't even know. <laughs> I just don't like this episode. Let's see if I had any notes that make me want to say anything else. It's, you know, like, Michael was watching it with me and like his main question, which was also one of my questions is why is no one wondering why Angel's being so weird? Like he's eating a burrito, which in, you know, in this world, in this vampire mythology, Angel, vampires can eat, but it's just like, it doesn't taste that great to them. So they usually don't. And of course it doesn't sustain them. But in this episode, whenever he was Marcus and Angel's body, he was eating, he was looking up vampires whatever he there was this whole thing where he Marcus and Angel's body almost had sex with Lila but then he went into vamp face and bit her for a second and yeah I don't know I just found this episode I mean it like I said the entire plot of this episode was just to remind new viewers of what's going on with Angel is that, you know, the whole soul thing, and if he loses his soul, blah, blah, blah. It was just a way to get that exposition out, and that's all it was. It was stupid. Um, Cordelia is at least not in a ton of pain this episode, so that's new. <laughs> Lately, her entire plot has just been visions, too hard for her, so many migraines, taking pills, acting like she's okay, but she's obviously not. And it's like, that's been her entire thing. Um, there were a couple of sweet little moments between Fred and Cordelia because it looks like they're developing a friendship at this point. I mean, I don't think that goes anywhere, but it looks like they're, they're developing a friendship at this point. Um, it takes them... 33 minutes into the episode to notice that Angel is not himself. That's <laughs> just Jesus. And it all resolves extremely quickly. Um, just kind of conveniently. Just like, oh, we gotta wrap this up! <laughs> and then at the very, very, very end of the episode, we get Cordelia coming in and saying that Willow's on the phone and that Buffy's alive. So that's the very, very last moment of the episode. And that's it. That's the Angel episode. Uh, I realized today I should have been making a list. This whole time, I should have been making a list of Angel episodes that are actually worth it to watch. Maybe I'll go back through the episode guide and just, like, start making that list now. 
and just do that from now on. I think that's going to be how my ratings are going to go from now on for Angel. Like, is this on the list or not? Because I think in the end, like actual episodes of Angel, and I kind of want to do this experiment. Like if I make a list of episodes as I'm watching through this for this project, if I make a list of episodes that I do think are actually worth a watch, how many episodes is that going to be at the end of the series? 10, 15, maybe it'll be like a whole season's worth, you know? Um, there are a lot of good episodes in season five, but we're not there yet. <laughs> I do like Fred as a character. So, or do I? I think I like Fred as a character. The next episode is all about Fred. It's called Fredless and it's her parents like come to see her and you know, they haven't seen her in like fucking five years or whatever. And, um, so I think we get a little bit more backstory on Fred. So I will probably enjoy the next episode, but this one not going on the list. I think it's skippable. So there you go. I'll start making that list. Okay. I have the memory of Dory. So I just paused <laughs> so I can like, I actually set a reminder in my phone. I am going to make that list. So that's going to be how I'm going to rate Angel from now on. This one, not on the list. Okay. Let's start talking about Buffy. That means y'all know that means it's time to take a nice, beautiful shot of whiskey or I'll just sip on it while I'm sitting here. Cause I've got the good whiskey again, guys. So I'm going to sip it. I'm not going to rush through it. Um, okay. So this episode begins with Buffy versus basement. That's how I've started taking my notes lately. <laughs> it's just like a mixture of quotes from the episode. And if it's like a scene with just two people in it, it's, you know, Buffy versus basement, Buffy versus Giles, Buffy versus Skirt, Buffy versus Demon. Like, that's just how I'm reminding myself of where we are in the episode. So my first note is Buffy versus Basement. So she's in the basement. This episode begins and ends. Mostly, it's not the very, very last scene, but it sort of begins and ends with Buffy in the basement, staring at a pipe, and she's trying to... You know, what's funny is, why is she trying to fix the pipes herself? When she thinks she has money at this point, and she thinks that the plumber will fix everything in, like, the next scene. So why is she trying to fix it herself? I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So she's trying to fix, she's got a pipe wrench, she's trying to fix it, and everything explodes, which is really not what would happen in that situation. But whatever. And... We get this hilarious scene with Dawn sitting, Dawn sitting on the steps behind Buffy and she's got the phone in her hand and she's like, I can call the plumber. I got the number. And Buffy's like, nope, I can fix it myself. And she tries and everything explodes and Dawn gets, you know, hosed down with water. Basically everything explodes throughout the whole episode. The basement is flooded, but people are still using the water. Like, what? Wouldn't that be really gross if everything's just leaking into the basement and they're just letting... I'm getting distracted by that, but... <laughs> so, at one point, Buffy's just kind of standing at the sink, staring into the kitchen sink, staring into the water, just kind of totally zoning out. Um, this is just... This is a pretty good episode for demonstrating Buffy's 
apathy right now. You know, she's very, uh, as, as we call it in psychology speech, she has a flat affect, you know, she's apathetic. She's just sort of like, and this is kind, I feel like I'm kind of like this all the time to a certain extent. Um, not really, but like, I do that. I zone out a lot. I, you know, people are just used to me being like that. But for Buffy, that's different. You know, she is usually taking up a lot of space energetically. You know, she's usually getting in there and telling people what to do and telling people how to treat her. And like, she's usually calling the shots. So I, so I understand that every, everybody's kind of like, on edge around her, you know, and they're worried about her so much all the time. Um, let's see. And they kind of break it to her in this episode that, you know, there was money after Joyce died, but it's gone now. And so Buffy is running out of money and I'm like, okay, how is this all on Buffy, first of all. Like, everyone's living in the house. Giles comes back. He, at one point, explains that he keeps a flat in Bath. So, like, the whole time that he was living in that gorgeous, like, little adobe house um, in Sunnydale, he had an apartment waiting for him back in England that's just there waiting for him. And he has the watcher's salary. And he was getting paid as, li as a librarian up until two years ago. And he had the watcher salary, I guess, up until three years ago. Well, and then he had the magic box. So Giles has had many incomes and he has enough money to have a house in Sunnydale and an apartment. He doesn't have the house in Sunnydale anymore, but it's you know, and Willow and Tara are living in Buffy's house. Like I, I realize that I shouldn't be fixing on this, fixating on this, but because it's a TV show, but why else would a person have a podcast? Right. Um, it's just, it's infuriating that everyone is expecting Buffy to take care of everything and she's about to get a job at some horrible fast food restaurant to pay all the bills and all of that stuff and it's not fucking fair. I mean, I realize that I think we're supposed to think I have heard no mention of school from Willow or Tara, but I think we're supposed to think that they're still going to school so they wouldn't have an income, I guess. But still, they ostensibly, they were spending Joyce's money while Buffy was dead, right? So why would they not be contributing? And also Giles, you know, if this is really, you know, the relationship between Giles and Buffy is supposed to be completely like egalitarian, teamwork, all that shit. And it really is. It's a very good relationship. But later, like in the next couple episodes, we're going to see Giles feeling bad that he he's going to help Buffy. He's going to give her a big check to help her with her money problems, which is great. He should do that. If he's got the money, why would he not do that? But it's 
And of course, I'll talk about it when we get there. But it's treated like, you know, he's enabling her by giving her this check. But and I see it in the context of like as a metaphor for real life. If a parental figure is paying all of your bills into your 20s, then they might be enabling you. I get it in that context and that's how we're supposed to see it. But in the specific context of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, who doesn't get paid for being a vampire slayer, when her watcher gets paid to be a watcher, he should be splitting that fucking income with her. You know, they're all about subverting the stupid watchers council. <laughs> I feel like if this show were written today, either Buffy would already be getting paid by the Watchers Council, which is how it should be, or Giles would be like, well, fuck them. They pay me well. I'm giving you half of it. Or more, you know? I mean, fuck. That shit just pisses me off. Anyway. Oh, I didn't read the... Hold on. Let me read the episode guide um, stuff for the Buffy episode because I didn't read that yet. I was going to pause it and do it before I started talking about the Buffy episode, but of course I forgot. Nikki Stafford agrees with me, by the way. <laughs> she was talking about, like, she has a section um, for each episode on nitpicks, and, like, sometimes they can be just, like, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Continuity errors or, like, you know, things like that. But in this one, she's bitching about, like, why are Tara and Willow not helping with any of the fucking bills? <laughs> Basically, is what she said. So I'm not alone in that, at least. <laughs> um, okay, where are we? Oh, and everyone treats Anya like she is just crazy for suggesting that Buffy should maybe start charging people for saving their lives. Angel's doing it. It's totally fine for Angel to do it, but not for Buffy. Like, it's weird how that goes. Like, if this is, and I realize I'm saying the same thing that I've said before and the same thing that I'll say many more times, but if this is actually a feminist show, then it wouldn't just be taken for granted that Giles gets paid as a watcher and Angel gets paid on angel investigations and he's able to support an entire staff on what he gets paid for his private investigator thing which is just his excuse for saving people's lives so why couldn't buffy do the same thing it's they don't even entertain the idea it's the former demon that no one takes seriously that suggests it and they're just like laughing at her which i hate <sighs> So, spoiler alert, Anya's the MVP of this episode because she speaks a lot of truth in this episode. She's confronting Xander with his, like, refusal to tell everyone that they're engaged um, and kind of telling him, like, look, you're afraid. Are Do you even want to get married? What's going on? Um, she all but slaps him in the face because he, you know, says some shit to really, like, you know butter her up and like calm her down and she's like no you keep doing that you need to grow up and um yeah she is the mvp that's the only thing that i filled out beforehand i didn't fill out object of the episode or outfit or quote or my five by five ratings that's the only thing i've filled out so far we'll see if i even get to anything else at this point
Okay. Um, Buffy goes to try to get a loan. Um, after they have like a big discussion with Anya, who's helping like figure out like what what Buffy owes, because they just sort of sit her down and tell her that the money's gone, and like Buffy's like, what does she say at one point? She's like, but I haven't spent any money. I was all dead and frugal. Um, which is a great point, you know, like they were all like, I'm not saying that like anybody was being irresponsible with, you know, Joyce's money or whatever. They were taking care of Dawn. I'm sure they weren't like doing anything extravagant, but they're not acting like they have any responsibility in this whole thing. Anyway, I need to stop fixating on that. I realize that I know. So Buffy goes to the bank. She tries to get a loan and basically that they're like, well, you have no collateral. You have no job, you know? The house is losing equity because property values suck in Sunnydale or whatever, whatever the fuck that means. And then the Mfashnik, which we don't know that's what he's called, but demon guy breaks into the bank. Buffy has to slit her skirt with a letter opener because her skirt that she wore for the loan application is all like fancy and pencil skirty and too long and she can't kick in it. So she has to cut it open, typical girl superhero thing, right? So that she can kick. She saves the loan officer's life by, um, she, she doesn't actually slay the demon because he runs off and she doesn't chase him for some reason. Um, and I guess because she's still trying to get the loan and she thinks rightfully so that after she saves the loan officer guy's life that he will give her the loan, but he still doesn't give her the fucking loan, which is awful. Um, there's a funny little joke because like the police come in or security guards or something come in with a gun and Buffy like takes it from them. And she's like, these things like holding onto the gun, never helpful. Um, and me just saying, why didn't she get the loan? He should have given it to her, right? Why wouldn't he? Um, and Willow's ranting, um, it's Willow and Buffy in the like training room and Willow's ranting like about the loan officer not giving her the loan even after she saved his life. And she's like, well, we're not going to give you money unless you prove you don't need it. And, you know, she's just ranting and it's just a cute little moment actually. Um, and Willow realizes that Buffy is angry cause she's like punching the punching bag cause she didn't get the loan. And, um, Willow's realizing that Buffy's angry, which is like, you know, and she actually says to Buffy, well, you know, since you've been back, you haven't been big on the whole range of human emotions thing. And Buffy's like, what? And Willow just stops confronting her at that point. She just kind of, which is probably indicative of Willow not wanting to pry because she doesn't want to know the answer. You know, it's like, which I, I, under normal circumstances, I don't think it's excusable for Willow as a character in general, but under normal circumstances, I can understand because we all have the shit. We all have all kinds of shit that we're dealing with in our own lives. And sometimes we can't really, sometimes we see people in our lives in a bad place and we can't go there with them, you know, and it's, 
it's awful, but sometimes, you know, you can't reach out and help someone else from drowning when you have no arms, you know, <laughs> um, terrible metaphor, but you know what I'm saying? Um, like that whole thing of like when someone takes their own life and you, if you know them, inevitably, you're going to feel bad. You're going to feel like you could have done more. And maybe that's true. But also, I mean, this isn't entirely the same thing, but I'm going to make a weird comparison here. But like, for example, whenever it's, it's totally a different kind of thing, but I swear it relates. Whenever I, so I went through like, it was like about 10 years ago a tornado hit my town and destroyed the houses and businesses. And I don't know, it destroyed like a third of this town, my hometown that I still live in. And it destroyed my house. It destroyed my mom's house. It destroyed my grandparents' house. It destroyed my little sister's house. It destroyed, you know, like 20, I think it was like 25% of everyone that worked at the library where I work all our 25% of us lost our houses. We didn't lose the library, thankfully. Because, you know, it was just like everything was gone. So it was nice that the library was still there. It's like, okay, this place is still here. I still have my job. That's great. You know, it was like, you're really holding on to every little thing. But anyway, not the point. I often look back at our house was made of like cinder block. So like it was destroyed, but a lot of the things in my house were actually salvageable because most of the walls were still up. Like the roof was gone and like most of the furniture or anything cloth or anything paper, most of that was gone, but, or not salvageable, but a lot of it was still there. A lot of my possessions could have been salvaged, but I didn't save as much as I could because at the time I did not have the mental resources to get in there and really save everything, you know? So there are a lot of, and a lot of things that I lost that I think back on a lot, like, God damn it. I could have saved that shit. But the reality is I couldn't have saved that shit because I can't change how little mental resources I had at the time that I was going through one of the most tragic things that I've gone through in my life. <laughs> you know, I can't go back and change that, you know? I feel like that's the same. So if you're a person, I feel like that's a similar thing. Like if you're a person that you've lost someone in your life due to them being self-destructive, like literally taking their own life on purpose or other circumstances, and you feel bad for not being able to do more, try to remember that when you were in a place where you didn't do more, it could have been because you didn't have the resources to do more at the time. Does that make sense? Um, we, of course, no one's responsible for someone else's feelings, thoughts, self-destructiveness. No one's responsible for someone else's self-destructiveness. But, and of course, we can help each other. 
but we don't always know what to do, how to do it, or even, you know, it's that thing like from Earshot, the Buffy episode, where she was hearing everyone else's thoughts and she's up in that tower with Jonathan and she's trying to talk him out of harming other people because at that point I think she thought he was he was going to shoot other people but he was really just going to kill himself and she makes the very good point that like he's like well no one pays attention to me no one cares about me nobody nobody even knows who I am so what does it matter you know if he takes his own life and she's like well yeah they don't notice you but that's because they all have their own pain they all have their own shit that they're dealing with I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't realize I was going to go into like a weird like depression rant, but that's just how this whole season's going to be, you know? This episode is really bringing to the forefront how apathetic Buffy is towards life at this point. And, you know, the whole metaphor of Buffy right now is that she's depressed like a lot. Okay, where are we? Um, Dawn finds that she starts doing research, which apparently I guess we're supposed to think this is the first time she's been allowed to do research. She's 15. I think she can start doing research. Like, I understand them trying to protect her from, like, demon violence and shit, although they should be training her. She's the little sister of a slayer. She should be... I realize she's a human, but she could still learn some combat skills. She should be being trained. Anyway. <laughs> so Dawn finds the demon pretty much immediately when she starts researching. Giles shows up. Um, it's a really, really sweet moment, actually. Um, when he comes in, Buffy hugs him. And she is feeling something towards Giles. You know, like... She wasn't really, genuinely, she wasn't really happy to see Xander and Willow. She really wasn't. And she hasn't shown any emotion towards them, really. But Giles, she hugged. Giles, you could tell she felt something for him coming back. And, you know, she needed him there. Like... Apparently, she's closer to Giles than she is to her friends. Or maybe she's actually kind of angry at them for bringing her back. But she's not angry at Giles because he didn't do that. He wouldn't have done that, you know? Um, I just realized that, I don't know how long it's been there, if it's been in any other scenes, but the Quan Yin that Angel used to have in his apartment is now um is now in the magic shop so it's over like in the corner the right corner by the door so i saw that whenever giles came in um whenever he like hugs her and everything giles just says you're and buffy says a miracle <laughs> and giles says well yes but then i always thought so Oh God, it's sweet. I love it. I love it. I love a great Giles Buffy moment. Um, then they're talking back in like the training room and 
Buffy asks Giles what he's been doing with himself. I, I think we can probably assume that this has been in real time, so it's possible that he's been in England for two weeks, maybe? So he says he keeps a flat in Bath, and he asks her, really asks her, how are you? Because no one else is really asking her that. They're, like I said before, they're saying, but you're okay, right? You're happy, right? Whereas, you know, Spike so far has been the only one that's actually asking her how she is and wanting to know the real answer. But Giles does. And Buffy goes into this whole, I'm fine. Except for the sleeping. You know, because of the whole waking up in a box thing. But really, it's just the waking up part. But just for a second. I, I mean, I sleep fine, except for the dreams, you know. So it's, she's being a little bit honest with Giles, for sure. And you can tell that he's, you know, he reassures her that, like, she's doing remarkably well, considering where she's been, again, because she's told everyone that she was in a hell dimension. And she, she gets kind of twitchy. Like, she's not going to tell anyone that she was not in hell, but she gets a little twitchy around Giles, and I think it's because she wants to tell him the truth. I've never really, like, picked up on that before, but I picked up on it this time. I think she, she wants to tell him the truth, and that's why she gets so twitchy, because um, she just kind of, like, basically tells him to go away. Not really, like, she just kind of says, well, I guess I should train for the slang, you know, and he takes the hint and leaves the room. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard to see her. So, so sad, especially knowing everything she's still going to have to go through in this season. Um, Giles comes back out into the magic box with everybody else. Anya hugs Giles. She's like happy to see him, I guess, but she tells him that he can't have the shop back. And he says, I know we get the first sighting of the trio. So Jonathan, Andrew and Warren and their plan to take over Sunnydale. Um, so we meet them finally in this episode. I mean, I guess not finally, this is the fourth episode of the season. So we're not that far in to be meeting the big bad. Ha <laughs> ha, the big bad. That's funny, right? Um, Buffy's helping Giles make up the couch. Because I guess that's the only place he can sleep. And it's just like, you know, cheesy kid bedding. And Giles says he... <laughs> she's like, I know, aren't they so cute you could die? It's sort of like little girl bedding or something. And Giles is like, no, it's whimsical. I like it. It's <laughs> something like that. Buffy starts telling Giles about the money problems. And he reassures her that, hey, tomorrow morning, we're going to go over everything. We'll figure it all out. And um, I'm just, I'm just realizing, okay, so like the last scene of the episode is that next morning where Giles had said, we'll go over everything together. We'll figure it out. And Buffy leaving, I mean, at, 
I was going to complain about like how everybody's like, you know, looking at her like she's shirking her responsibilities or whatever whenever she leaves to go meet Angel. But I kind of get it, you know, he's he's committing to sitting down with her and going through all of her finances and figuring out like how they're going to figure it out, I guess, I don't know. And she leaves in the middle of that. Like whenever you know, how long was that whole thing going to take? A couple hours? Um, I feel like she could have waited to go meet Angel, but oh, anyway, whatever. We're not there yet. So we do sort of get a lot of the dynamic of Jonathan Warren and um, Andrew in this first meeting of them in this episode. We don't get yet, like, they haven't started playing up, like, Andrew's, like, crush on Warren and the fact that he's, like, they both kind of gang up on Jonathan. There was a little bit of ganging up on Jonathan, but overall it seemed like Jonathan and Andrew were closer friends and that Warren was just kind of evil. Because he, like, sicks the demon on Buffy, gives gives the demon her address and stuff without telling them when it, whenever they've already decided not to kill Buffy. So, that's the first, you know. I'm just saying that they, they already knew exactly where that dynamic was going to go, and they do a pretty good job at showing it. Like, they're still showing him as being kind of you know, just a nerd, but you see the glimpse of, like, the evil that Warren will become, you know? Oh, shit. Giles versus Willow. That's my next note. And Dad's mad. <laughs> this is that scene where, in the kitchen, Willow's just sort of, like, at first... I was thinking, like, after watching this episode the first time the other night, I was thinking, well, Giles was a little bit harsh. Like, he came out of the gate ready to yell at Willow. But I get it. You know, he spent, like, at least a couple of weeks um, knowing that Buffy was back before he was able to come back. And he knows that Willow's responsible for the spell. And he's probably been thinking about what he's going to say to her for a long time. And it just sort of all comes out. So under that context, I understand. But he actually doesn't just like dive in on calling her stupid and a rank arrogant amateur and all of that stuff. Like he starts with, tell me about the spell. And the way that Willow talks about it is infuriating in the context of if you're Giles, you find out that she's done this thing. You're also like, I mean, Giles is a magical human as well. He's a warlock, I guess, as they call it in this terminology, he's a warlock. So he could have helped, but Willow knew that he would have stopped her. So I totally get how angry he is. 
I mean, I never really perceived it as, oh my god, Giles is yelling at Willow. You know, I thought she deserved it, always. But Giles does not yell. Like this, we've seen Giles yell. But every time it's effective because it doesn't happen often. Anyway, the way that she talks about it. So he's like, tell me about the spell. The way that she talks about the spell is like, oh my God, you should have seen it. A snake came out of my mouth. It was so crazy and so cool, but I kept it together. And like, she is bragging and she is expecting Giles to tell her that she's a wonderful, powerful witch and congratulate her on her awesome sorcery or whatever. She really is expecting that. And that reaction gets, you know, I think no matter what, Giles is angry. And, you know, he would have maybe had a more productive conversation with Willow if she hadn't been like that. But I also think that this conversation is not helpful to Willow and the path that she's on. I totally understand why Giles is angry. And I totally understand everything that he said. But... This is just going to get Willow defensive, as we see, because she's like, maybe it's not such a good idea for you to piss me off. You know, she says that to him. In this scene, we're getting the indication, like, this is a pretty important episode, because, like, we we meet the trio and we see exactly where those characters are going to go. The whole Buffy, everything's just character-based, pretty much, in this episode. We see that... You know, we've seen a little bit of an indicator so far of Willow and the kind of power that she has and the fact that she is abusing that power. But this conversation between Giles and Willow is really pivotal, I think. It's showing us where Willow's character is going, but it also possibly pushed her even further into the darkness because... She's never had disapproval from Giles before. And, you know, they don't really play. They act like, you know, Giles and Willow have a special relationship. They kind of act like we're supposed to think that, but we haven't really seen that many. If like we don't get those scenes that like Giles and Buffy get together as Watcher and Slayer those moments of bonding. We don't really get that between Giles and Willow, but we're supposed to like react as if we've gotten that, but we don't really get that. But I mean, there are little moments here and there every once in a while, but not real moment moments. You know what I mean? Under different circumstances though, this argument between Giles and Willow, you know, if I had come into it not knowing if all I knew was that like Willow's a witch and she's pretty powerful and Giles is a father figure. You know, if I had just come in knowing only that much, I might have felt a little bit differently about this argument. You know, like if I, if I look at it slightly objectively, cause y'all know how much I love Giles and how pissed off I get at Willow a lot. But if I'm looking at it objectively, like, yeah, Willow was being arrogant in this conversation. But 
it is sort of reminding me, if I'm looking at it objectively, again, sort of reminding me of just like magic in general, like in real life, like there's this whole thing. So like I identify as a witch and I, you know, I have done research on witchcraft since I was like a teenager, you know, like I've read the books on Wicca and like I've read shit on like esoteric crap and, you know, arcane crap and Order of the Golden Dawn and Aleister Crowley and like, you know, there's a lot of like Thalamic witchcraft and like Gardnerian witchcraft and like there's a lot of dogma in every single religion in the whole entire world, including Wicca. Unfortunately, it's one of my great disappointments in life is that I've always been looking for the right, like spirituality or religion for me, but it's almost always just a bunch of fucking bureaucratic nonsense, no matter what gatekeepery bullshit, all that stuff. And if I were looking at this argument objectively, not knowing much about the character history and not having a propensity towards trusting Giles, I could have possibly seen this argument as, oh, here's like an old witch dude that, you know, has, he, he's set in his ways. Like there's a lot of shit, especially in like Gardnerian witchcraft, that's like, you know, this is how you're, you need to cast a circle and you have to do it like this. And you have to have this tool and this tool and this tool on your altar at all times. And it needs to look like this. And this is a diagram of the setup of what your altar should look like. And when you're doing a spell, you need to call in the four corners and you need to do this, this, and this. And it's all very like, I don't know, just like stupid shit. I mean, it's ritualistic and if people take comfort in that and they want to follow those rules, great. But acknowledge that you don't need to do everything in a specific way. And it sort of sounds like Giles is yelling at Willow because she didn't do it right. I mean, objectively, again. But knowing the context of everything, we didn't just get dropped into this one episode, most likely. So knowing the context of that, that's not what it's like at all. But just saying, just in case anyone's listening, that is looking into witchcraft for the first time for some reason, and you are noticing all of that bureaucratic shit, please know that you don't have to do any of that. You can make up your own path as a witch however you want to. The only thing you need to remember is... And it harm none, do as thou wilt. As long as you're not hurting someone else, you're doing it right. You know? Anyway. <laughs> um, I've, I think the quote of the episode, because it really wasn't anything super great. I mean, Giles calling Willow a rank, arrogant amateur is memorable. But um, I think my favorite just like funny quote of the episode is so Jonathan, Andrew and Warren are like arguing about whether or not they should send the unfashionate guy to kill Buffy or whatever. And Jonathan's like, I don't want to kill Buffy. She saved my life a bunch of times. <laughs> and it's just like, yep, that's exactly like if he hadn't made that argument, I would be calling bullshit right now, you know? Um. 
I think I went backwards. Yes, I did. Okay. I just forgot to mention that part and I noticed it in my notes. Okay. Okay. Then we get Buffy and Spike on the back porch, which, hey, we've seen them sitting here before in a moment of solace in the Fool for Love episode when Buffy is sad about her mom and he comes out and he sits next to her and, you know, he's good for her when she's depressed because he can just sit in silence next to her. So we get a little scene between the two of them and Buffy actually says to him, you know, a true thing. She says, I'm spending all of my time trying to be okay. And it's exhausting being, trying to be okay in front of them because they care so much and they want to make sure they want her to be okay. See, that's the thing though. Like she, she knows that she's worrying them and she knows that they want her to be okay but that's the thing. They just want her to be okay. And she's not okay. You know, they're not, they're not helping her. They're not giving her any resources. They're not listening to how she really is. They just want her to be okay. That's all. You know, yeah, they care, but they just want her to like flip a switch and be Buffy again. And they're I think they're willfully believing that she came back from hell, you know, like surely they know in their hearts of hearts that she was not in hell. So mm, Fashnik shows up at Buffy's house because Warren gave her, gave him the address. Um, this is the one and probably only time that Buffy is worried about like the stuff in the house because like she knows what money is now, I guess in this episode, she finds out what money is. That's what the, the synopsis should have been the one where Buffy realizes what money is because she's like pissed off that, you know, he attacks her in her house and like destroys the coffee table and the lamp and other stuff. So she actually like, takes the demon to the basement so that she can kill him down there where he can't destroy anything, I guess. And it's flooded. And there's this funny little moment where Spike comes down the stairs like, did you know this place was flooded? Yeah. And I mean, I guess, okay, that explains things even more. Like the last scene, like when she just kind of storms out to go meet Angel, like, it is a little bit like, but come on, Buffy, we need to deal with these bills and we need to figure out how we're going to fix this situation in the basement. And I get it also from Dawn's point of view. Like she's sitting there on the couch. She's worried that, you know, she doesn't understand any of this shit. She's only 15. She shouldn't have to understand this shit. Giles is there, but like, I guess, okay, I guess I get it. I mean, obviously, like all the shit that I said already about Buffy, like needing to be paid and like everybody's mooching off of her and like what they're expecting of her is a little too much. I, I stand by that still, but I understand from the perspective of, I mean, she's really, you know, she said in like the last episode, I think I miss Giles and Giles is there and she hugs him 
And she's so happy he's there because she thinks he's going to fix everything. She thinks he's going to take care of everything. And she actually says that on the way out the door. She actually just like turns around and she says, thanks for taking care of all this for me. And then leaves. Like she just expects him to take care of everything for her. She didn't ask him to. She didn't, you know. But at the same time, why wouldn't they just do that for her? You know? Just, yeah, go ahead. Take care of everything for her. Why not? She's not really shirking her responsibilities. She was dead. She just came back. She hasn't readjusted to everything yet. Plus, she's a fucking slayer. You know, she's got other shit to do. Like, come on. Okay, I do not have an outfit of the episode, but I want to give a huge dishonorable mention to the outfit that Buffy is wearing throughout, like, the second half of this episode. The full scope of it is just so atrocious. She's wearing these, like, beige patent leather pointy pointy but square, you know, that kind that's like, it points, but then it squares off kind of boot with like khaki colored corduroys and like a weird smushy slinky, like ruchy situation. It's a totally monochromatic beige outfit that just grosses me out to my very core. It is one of the worst outfits Buffy has ever worn. That is the outfit of the episode because it's so bad. It's so bad. Everything's bad right now. Like no one has a good outfit in this episode at all. Like maybe Spike just because it's just a basic black jeans, black belt, black t-shirt, trench coat, like classic, timeless, fine. Um, but everyone else sucks. Willow is wearing like, it's almost an outfit that's good, but it's styled badly. It's like a purple camisole under a sheer, like dark colored, like maybe black or dark gray top, but it's not buttoned and it would have looked cool if it was buttoned, but it's just completely unbuttoned and it just looks stupid and she's wearing like this belt with this giant oh you guys do you remember 2001 fashion you know that whole like when Madonna's music album came out and everybody was like doing like this weird like bejazzled like cowboy adjacent thing like everything was bejeweled and bedazzled, and vajazzled, and, like, bootlegs, lots of boots, bootleg jeans. It was before everything got, like, super low cut, but we're almost there. <laughs> and all the fucking peasant tops and shit. It was like, cowgirl gone wrong. It was just the worst era of fashion ever. Just ever. Just ever. Okay, what, do I, what else do I have to say? Um, oh, just like offhanded remark from the guys in the trio. Like maybe we should hypnotize Buffy, make her our willing sex bunny. And that was something 
for y'all that aren't 39 years old and you don't remember this, that was something that was just an offhanded remark that we had to hear in TV back in those days. It was something that didn't even register as being super rapey and awful. Like, it's obvious now when somebody says something like that. But I remember, because I watched this episode when it first came out, I probably thought nothing of that comment. It probably rolled right past me. Because that kind of shit was said all the time. The sort of self-worth that women had back in that day. Like, it's gotta be different now. I hope it's different now. But that was something that was just, you know, rolled right past you. Didn't even think about it. But it's so awful to see something like that now. To hear something said like that now. Um, yeah, so then there's basically the only other scene is whenever they're going through the bills and Angel calls. Which there's like a little bit of a... What? Because as we just heard when I talked about the Angel episode... Angel gets a call from Willow to find out that Buffy's alive. But in this episode, like, Buffy gets a call from Angel. So what are we supposed to think happened here? <laughs> that, like, obviously they didn't coordinate this shit correctly. You know, like, I guess we're supposed to think that Willow at some point called Angel and then he had to wait till the next morning or something to call her back, maybe? But wouldn't Willow have given Buffy a heads up that she talked to Angel? I don't know. Anyway, the other thing I have to say about this whole thing is that we never find out, you know, so Buffy's going to meet Angel. Angel's going to meet Buffy. They make it clear that they're meeting somewhere in the middle because they can't have a crossover episode because they're on separate networks now or whatever. So we don't get to see what it was like for Buffy to meet up with Angel. We don't get to see the scene between the two of them. We'll get to see, like, the after effects of, like, how Angel processes what it was like to see Buffy and how Buffy processes what it was like to see Angel when she talks to the other... when they talk to the other people on their respective shows next episode. I think... I think we get a moment of that. But that's it. I'm sure there's a lot of fan fiction and stuff like that that kind of covers this meeting between the two of them. There might even be novels written about it. There's this particular author. I can't remember her name. It's like, I want to say Nancy Holden, Christopher Holden, Nancy something. I don't know. But there are a couple of different fiction authors that write a lot of probably non-canon, but a lot of, like, novels about Buffy. Um, and I think there might be one about this particular meeting between Buffy and Angel. I don't know. If you guys know, please let me know. Ray at ProtonMail is where you can send me an email anytime you want to tell me about anything ever. Um, I would love to know I'm not good at looking that stuff up. I don't know. I just, I suck at that kind of stuff. So if you guys already know, please tell me. I would love to know. I just, um, I'm so fucking late to the party. Sometimes I'm just like such a Luddite, but somebody told me, one of my friends, my friend Meg, if you ever listen to this podcast, Meg, it will probably be years in the future, 
but thank you again for telling me about thrift books. I didn't know about thrift books. There's this website called thriftbooks.com. Dot com, you know. Debbie, 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 dot. <laughs> and it's, um, it's just like really cheap used books, basically. And I nerded out today and I bought like, I bought like five different like little paperback like vampire novels and stuff. Some stuff I've read before that I just don't have anymore and like a couple of things that I've never read. And I'm really excited because like I used to love like trashy vampire novels from the late 90s, early 2000s, especially. That's my era because that's whenever I was like, you know, at that age. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to get back into that shit. <laughs> um, I have a themed book club. Like we don't read the same book every month. We just read something that fits within a theme and then we tell each other about it. And the theme for next month is if you were to like, you meet a new friend or you're dating a new person or whatever, and you're getting to know someone new, what book would you give them to read that would help them get to know you. So I'm trying to decide what book I'm going to pick for that. And the only thing I can think of is it's got to be like a trashy vampire novel. It just has to. Because like as far as fiction goes, that's like, that's what I read. <laughs> I mean, I don't read that much fiction these days, but I grew up on that shit, especially like trashy vampire fiction set in New Orleans. So like, Poppy Z. Bright and Anne Rice were my two besties back in the day. <laughs> um, so yeah, I haven't decided yet, but I'm thinking it might be Queen of the Damned. Like, I'm not a huge Vampire Chronicles person, but Queen of the Damned includes the best vampire origin story ever. Fight me. Go ahead. <laughs> Please let me know if you agree or disagree with that statement or what you think about trashy vampire novels from the late 90s, early 2000s, and what you think about really anything. Ray at protonmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Okay, that's it, I think. Okay, let's do ratings and shit. So, object of the episode, I don't, sorry, I just picked up a crystal and clinked against my shot glass. Um, that was probably loud. I don't think I have an object of the episode for this episode. Let's say Buffy's back porch, because it looks pretty cool. It's like a deck. There's like enough room for a table and some chairs, and there's like some little steps to sit on, and it looks like it goes even beyond that. So sure, let's say Buffy's back deck. I've never said that before. That's the object of the episode that I would like to pluck out of the episode and keep for myself. Um, outfit of the episode, like I said, super dishonorable mention to the monochromatic beige outfit that Buffy was wearing. So gross. The quote of the episode is the, I don't want to kill Buffy. She's like, she saved my life a bunch of times. MVP, like I said, I mean, it's kind of Giles too, but also Anya, she's just very underappreciated. Let's give it to both Anya and Giles because Giles shows up. And he really cares and he really wants to know how Buffy is doing. He's very good for her, actually. Five by five. This is an important episode. I think it really drives home some emotional points. 
It really shows you where the characters are going. So far, the season's been very fucking solid in its mission statements and character developments and all of that stuff. Like, everything's been good so far. So, I don't know. I'll give it a four. It's not, like, one of my favorite episodes ever. But it's solid. So there you go. Um, I will be back next week where we will talk about the Angel episode Fredless and the Buffy episode Life Serial. And I'll see you then. Okay. Thanks for listening. Bye.